Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 15. Today we're going to look at a pair of violin sonatas, number 4, opus 23, and number 5, opus 24, two contrasting works that were originally intended to be published under the same opus number, but due to a quirk in the printing process regarding the size of the individual parts, were ultimately published separately. We looked at a different pair of violin sonatas in episode 8, and you may recall that there were certainly some features to admire in those works. Still, most historians rank the sonatas of Opus 23 and Opus 24 quite a bit higher, especially Opus 24, the so-called Spring Sonata. But even though Opus 24 has garnered more accolades, Opus 23, the sonata in A minor, nevertheless displays some dynamic qualities and exhibits many admirable features. The first movement of the sonata is in 6-8 time and marked presto, both a little unusual for a first movement. The first theme, presented initially in the piano, with the violin providing sustained double stops in harmonic support, is a dramatic one, which begins with a strong descending motive starting with an accented dotted quarter on the fifth of the A minor scale, after a pair of grace notes, and ending down a fifth on tonic. Here's a simplified version. The motive is presented again a step higher in the next two measures, and then a new version of it switches to the piano left hand, as the right hand takes up the ascending arpeggio patterns originally heard in the left. Meanwhile, the violin takes on the status of an equal melodic partner by contributing a series of inversions of the initial motive, which the piano right hand soon picks up as well. And 12 measures later, we arrive at a solid cadence on the tonic chord of A minor. After a very brief pause, a new passage appears, piano and violin together, sporting a new rhythmically distinctive motive and, apparently, a phrase modulation to C major. You may recall from earlier episodes that a modulation to C major, the relative major of A minor, would not be unexpected. In a typical minor key, the second subject would normally be the relative major key or perhaps the dominant, as it would be in a major key movement. So, if there is a surprise here initially, it would probably be in the suddenness with which the new key appears. Generally speaking, we would encounter something like a modulatory transition that would gradually change over from A minor to C major. But here, the process is immediate, or maybe it would be better to say that there's really no process at all. The first subject comes to a solid cadence on A minor, and after a second and a half of silence, we just start up again in C major with a new idea. But the catch is that we don't stay in C major. Just five bars later, by means of a sequential repetition, we're moving toward E minor. After another sequential repetition, it appears for an instant that we're heading to G major, which suggests that perhaps we're really going to return to C major. But we don't and some chromatic motion in the left-hand bass line soon forces us back to E minor, where we sit for a few cadential measures before coming to a full stop on the dominant in that key.
The second subject lopes along rather quietly, without a lot of rhythmic variety in any of the parts, mostly just quarter-eighth, quarter-eighth patterns, and with violin and piano initially moving in parallel tenths. And it is in the key of the minor dominant, so the familiar contrast between a minor key first subject and a major key second subject is obviously lacking here. The initial presentation of the theme is eight bars in length, coming to a half cadence on the dominant. The next eight bars switch the parts around a bit, violin and right hand and left hand of the piano, again coming to a stop on the dominant chord. Following these two versions of the theme, we hear another eight bars, which eventually return us to the tonic chord of E minor, initially displaying some cleverly independent and interlocking rhythms among the three parts, but in the end, settling back into the more homophonic rhythms that began the second subject. Even though the meter and tempo are both a bit unusual for a first movement, as I said earlier, it does follow more or less the typical sonata allegro form. So, as in several other movements we've looked at in previous episodes, we might expect to encounter a closing section at this point, now that the second subject has come to such an emphatic close. And we do, sort of. What follows is eight measures of what is at least partially a new idea although there's no question that it owes a debt to the modulatory transition. It features a series of four-note motives like the earlier transition, but organized in a more consistent ascending pattern. And unlike the earlier transition section, it crescendos all the way and climaxes with a series of accents. By the way, the exposition does not end at this point. Instead, we drop back down to piano briefly, and here, a final section of eight bars that could well be heard as a brief codetta, since it introduces a new texture, anchored solidly by left-hand octaves, new offbeat and weak beat accents, and somewhat new melodic ideas, although the piano right hand and violin continue to interact in a familiar way. Here is the closing section, such as it is, going to the brief codetta and into the repeat. The development section starts conventionally enough by playing with the opening motive from the first subject, employing it in both violin and piano to modulate from its starting point in A minor, quickly through D minor and C major, and then on to F major. It's here that we encounter a surprising new and elegantly lyrical theme, which unfolds slowly in longer note values. Of course, Beethoven didn't invent the notion of throwing in an entirely new theme into the development section. Mozart was particularly well known for that, but it's very effective here, at least in part because it gives us the contrasting major key theme that we may have missed in the exposition. Here is the beginning of the development section, starting with the familiar opening motive 
but soon modulating to F major for the expansive new theme. By the way, even though the violin's theme is new, you'll still hear the familiar opening four-note motive in the piano left hand, beneath the Alberti bass accompaniment, which supports the violin. As you heard near the end of my excerpt, the new melody, Welcome As It Is, disappears after 12 measures, and we're back to the motives from the first subject and transition tossed back and forth between piano and violin as we move toward D minor. Although there are plenty of sforzando accents, the texture is actually fairly thin for much of the time, at least until Beethoven starts focusing on the closing section motives and things get a little busier. It comes as a bit of a surprise when we encounter a fermata on the dominant chord in A minor, because we probably expect that to signal the end of the development section. And although we do lock into A minor for some time after the fermata, and we hear a theme that sounds somewhat new, first in the violin in A minor, and then in the piano in D minor, but it's really just a reconfiguration of motives based on the first subject and we haven't really arrived at the recapitulation, not yet. The real recapitulation comes after a gradually crescendoing passage which leans for a while toward B-flat major, the flat second scale degree in A minor, or so-called Neapolitan relationship, which Beethoven was especially fond of. Here then is the last part of the development section leading up to the fermata I just referred to, the almost new theme, which still draws on earlier motives, and finally, the beginning of the actual recapitulation. I'm only going to play one more excerpt from the recapitulation, in which the second theme returns not in the tonic minor, A minor, as we might expect, but the relative major, C major, which we might have been expecting in the exposition. It doesn't stay there forever, of course, eventually moving in the direction of A minor for the remainder of the recapitulation.
Beethoven is actually written in a first and second ending for the recapitulation, assuming that the section will repeat, something you don't always encounter and which is often disregarded in modern performances. After the repeat, there is a coda, which brings back the almost new theme we heard earlier in the development section as the dynamics ebb and flow. In the last few measures, the opening motive is brought back yet again, and although punctuated regularly by sforzando accents, we actually conclude with a pianissimo cadence. The second movement in A major 2-4 time, and marked Andante Scherzozzo Pio Allegretto, is another movement in sonata form, although we're only going to look at the exposition. The first theme is both delicate and simple, unfolding mostly in two-note motives in the piano, weak beat to strong beat, the right and left hands moving in tenths. After eight bars, the violin takes the gently undulating top voice melody up an octave, with the piano right hand now filling in the rhythmic gaps. In the next eight bars, a variant of the melody is introduced in the piano, and it's the violin that plugs the gaps with its two-note motives. Eight bars later, the two again switch roles. In the process of trading off the mostly two-note motives, Beethoven has hinted at a few other tonal centers along the way, but in the end, we cadence securely back in A major. Here's the first part of the theme. After coming to a full stop in A major, a new theme is introduced, which fills the role of modulating to the dominant. And, perhaps a bit surprisingly, given the nature of the first subject and, as far as that goes, the nature of the transition itself, it's actually fugal in a gentle, rather antiquated sort of way. Here are the last few bars of the first subject and the fugal modulatory transition. As you probably noticed, the fugal activity comes to a stop after three and a half imitative answers, at which point the passage migrates to a flow of scale-wise sixteenth notes played in thirds as it gets a little more serious about actually modulating to E major, the key of the dominant. 
The second subject also has something of an antiquated feel about it. It begins in the piano on the fifth scale degree in the new key and ornaments that pitch with a 30-second note lower neighbor figure which comes off rather like a slightly slower measured trill, echoing the trill that played an important role in the fugue subject we just heard. This rather gentle but rather static theme soon takes on a greater sense of directional momentum as it ascends up the scale with a dotted note rhythm, peaking an octave higher than it began. Then the violin takes over the theme, still quietly, echoed by the piano right hand. As the second subject continues, more clearly directional dotted rhythm figures are introduced and echoed back and forth, increasingly marked by offbeat accents. Still, the section comes to a quiet enough conclusion with a cadence on E major. For the sake of completeness, at least in regard to the exposition, we'll hear the closing section that follows the second subject and the brief codetta that comes after that. The eight-measure closing section remains quiet initially and is more notable for its rhythmic profile than its melodic one. It moves into the codetta with another emphatic cadence on the dominant as the violin introduces a slower, simpler, and rather plaintive melody in quarter notes and eighth notes. Against it, the piano right hand and later left hand play staccato 16th note arpeggios, decrescendoing to a pianissimo conclusion. The finale in A minor, cut timed and marked Allegro Molto, is a rondo but not a conventional one. Typically a rondo theme has something of a dance-like nature, or at least displays some very distinctive rhythmic qualities. This theme, marked piano, which unfolds initially with the violin sustaining repeated whole notes and the piano providing a series of quarter notes in both hands, is somewhat reminiscent of the sort of counterpoint exercise which Beethoven might earlier have been assigned by Albrechtsberger. The left-hand part sometimes mirrors the right hand and at other points duplicates it a tenth lower. Starting in measure 5, the violin takes on a somewhat more active role, while the piano right hand increases its level of melodic activity as well. Soon, the violin takes over the piano's original melodic statement, while the piano takes on a more traditional accompaniment texture based on broken chord arpeggios. Here are the first 20 measures. Mm -hmm. 
Angus Watson refers to the mood here as deeply troubled. It's possible that anxious might be a better description at this point, although there's no question that Beethoven is consciously reinvoking the drama of the opening measures of the first movement. Following the first statement of the refrain theme, we encounter a bustling transition and then the ominous first episode, which begins with a series of arpeggiated diminished seventh chords and across the bar ties, the arpeggios ascending in the violin and inverted in the piano. We settle briefly on B minor before taking off on a new series of arpeggiated diminished seventh chords, which settles this time on A minor. More diminished chord arpeggios in across the bar ties direct us toward E minor, but a new repeated cadential tag sets us up for a final return to A minor. Here's the transition to the first episode and the episode itself, followed by a retransition back to the refrain theme, one which dramatically slows down the action with a switch to adagio and a fermata. After the refrain theme's recurrence, we hear a second, highly contrasting episode in A major, one based on pairs of staccato notes traded back and forth between violin and piano, interrupted three times by a fermata and sustained tone. After the refrain returns, we hear another highly contrasting episode. It begins in F major and is initially quite slow-moving, the melody unfolding in whole notes and harmonized in block chords in the piano, and bearing some relationship to the initial refrain melody in terms of contour. As the first eight-bar statement comes to a close on the dominant, violin and piano become a bit more active rhythmically. A slightly varied version of this mostly whole note melody then moves to the piano right hand, accompanied in the violin by repeated lower neighbor tone figures in quarter notes. A mildly contrasting second melodic idea of eight bars is then introduced in the violin, still primarily in whole notes and still harmonized with block chords. The piano takes up this new eight bar melody with the violin again accompanying with quarter note neighbor tone motives. All this goes on for some time, with the piano introducing new quarter note triplets against the slow-moving melody, triplets which are eventually picked up by the violin 
and the participants again switch roles. I'm going to play just a little bit of this episode. refrain theme then returns, and afterwards we encounter a robust coda. We might expect the end of the movement to come quickly at this point, but in fact the momentum shifts again after a fermata on a diminished chord, and we are treated to a little reminiscence of both the first and second episodes, and even a little of the third, before the original refrain theme is ushered in for the final time to take us surprisingly quietly to the final bars of the sonata. It's certainly an interesting sonata with some darkly dramatic moments that make it seem much more ambitious than Beethoven's earlier violin sonatas. But it's also a little perplexing in terms of musical continuity, and that may have prevented the work from becoming as massively popular as the next violin sonata, Opus 24. Beethoven authority Louis Lockwood has referred to Opus 24, the so-called Spring Sonata, as one of the most gracious and beguiling works Beethoven ever wrote. And Angus Watson points out that the sonata well deserves its nickname, suggesting that F major seems to have been Beethoven's key in which to meditate on the joys, but also on the spiritual inspiration of nature the most obvious example of which is probably the Pastoral Symphony, number 6 in F major. The work begins with a sonatiform movement in common time and marked allegro. The violin, with simple chordal accompaniment from the piano, presents a lovely melody, its ten-measure opening statement a little longer than usual, and made up of three distinctive ideas, the first two of which are repeated sequentially. Although there is nothing at all remarkable about the underlying harmonic structure, the melody's employment of accented non-harmonic tones is particularly effective. The piano then takes center stage, with the violin providing accompanying chordal arpeggios. Initially, the piano replicates the violin's opening measures, but soon is providing more freely embellished and sometimes more chromatic versions of the violin's phrases. It also adds on a five-measure extension, which makes use of even more accented non-harmonic tones, before coming to a stop on the dominant.
A modulatory transition follows, one that begins in the piano after an abrupt shift to C minor by drawing on the opening motive of the first subject, but then goes on to introduce a somewhat new two-bar phrase in the violin, this alternating with ascending arpeggios in the piano. In the last four bars of the transition, the arpeggios have given away to a thunderously descending chromatic line in 16th notes in the piano which pauses briefly to let the violin catch up and then finishes off its descent, now in eighth notes, and surprisingly, rather softly. The second subject, in the normal key of C major, is very much a joint effort, although neither violin nor piano introduces any particularly distinctive melodic ideas. Initially, the violin contributes sforzando half notes, decorated by a pair of grace notes, across the bar, while the piano simply arpeggiates up the C major tonic chord in full block chords. As the second subject proceeds, and we veer into C minor, both piano and violin make repeated use of staccato 16th note repetitions, and a series of diminished chords introduce a bit of dramatic intensity. But it's only a temporary gesture, and soon we're back in C major, and the violin and piano switch roles, and we do it all over again. Following the second subject, we hear a fairly short closing section based on a series of swirling, sequentially repeated 16th note scale passages, first in the violin and then in the piano. Here we faint briefly toward F major, the original tonic, even touching for a couple of measures on F minor. After nine measures, we merge into a codetta of sorts, which still flirts briefly with F minor and adds on a new repeated two-measure melodic fragment from the violin, as the piano swirls its way into the first ending and the repeat of the exposition.
Although the development section makes an immediate reference to the lovely first subject, it focuses its attention more on the second. I think the reasons for this are clear enough. The greatest melodies don't necessarily carry with them the greatest potential for development. The second subject, on the other hand, lends itself easily to all sorts of manipulations, tonal and otherwise. And the eighth notes are eventually transformed into a series of triplet figures in both piano and violin, energized by a series of powerful weak beat accents. Eventually, the triplets give way to repeated patterns of sixteenth notes, which come off rather like slow trills, and which eventually lead us back quietly to the first theme for the recapitulation. The piano takes the lead this time around, and when the violin comes in for its statement, Beethoven adds some new chromaticism, which, at least for a while, takes us in new tonal directions. But we're back securely in F major for the return of the second subject. There are a few harmonic surprises in the new coda section, but that could almost be considered standard operating procedure and its motivic material never strays that far from ideas we're already familiar with. So, we'll leave the first movement and take a look at the second. It's in B-flat major, the key of the subdominant, 3-4 time and marked Adagio Molto Espressivo. As in the first movement, it begins with a lovely lyrical melody in the piano right hand, against gentle broken chord accompaniment in the left with the violin providing a remarkably restrained countermelody against it. After eight bars, the violin assumes the main theme. Although quite florid in places, this beautiful melody has an unusually serene quality to it, in part because of the simplicity of the harmony beneath it. After the initial melody is heard in both piano and violin and comes to a cadence in B-flat, a new shared idea is then introduced, which unfolds in shorter, more hesitant phrases, which eventually, and after a slight increase in dynamic intensity, appears to deliver us into F major. 
but a series of descending arpeggios, which seem at first to be affirming F major, are, at the last minute, transformed into dominant seventh chords on F major, which naturally returns us to the original tonic of B-flat, for an exquisite variation of the original theme. Here is that transitional passage which appears to move us in the direction of F major, but ultimately returns us to B-flat. A variation of the theme is presented next, one that begins in B-flat and features new ornamental gestures, from rapidly repeated notes to swirling passages which climb dramatically to a high point and then come fluttering down in a flow of 64th notes. After eight bars, we move into B-flat minor, the first step on a journey that eventually takes us to G-flat major and beyond due to a very clever enharmonic reinterpretation that transforms the G-flat chord into an F-sharp minor chord, and from there to D major, D minor, and eventually back to B-flat major, as violin and piano exchange swirling melismas. Here the violin carries the melody against chordal arpeggios in the piano. Here is a little of that passage from the beginning of the first variation through the turn to B-flat minor, when the violin takes over the main melodic idea and the initial modulations begin from that point.
Returning to the key of B-flat major, we hear the beginning of what appears to be another variation, with the piano repeating a new, but nevertheless familiar motive up a step twice. Soon the violin takes up this new idea, basically just a new version of the undulating swirl motive, which has occurred in various guises throughout the movement, as it crescendos over the space of four measures accompanied by an increasingly active violin countermelody. Eventually, the violin embraces the pianist's motive, with the volume again dropping down to piano. We've heard this sort of thing throughout the movement, crescendoing for a few measures at a time, and then dropping back down to piano, and in the end, pianissimo. The last few measures introduce a fluttering, trill-like alternation of notes expressing a dominant seventh chord which crescendos briefly and then resolves, piano of course, to the tonic chord of B-flat. This happens three times, but the last four bars of the movement simply reiterate the tonic chord, very quietly, with both the piano right hand and the violin providing brief, embellishing motives. It's a wonderful movement, combining elegance and emotional understatement in a way that no previous slow movement from the violin sonatas had done. The third movement is a scherzo in F major, 3-4 time, and marked Allegro Molto. It's a singular movement in a number of ways. Here are the first eight measures. This playful little melody, with its slightly quirky rhythm, is simple enough. Starting on the third scale degree, it moves mostly by step, first up to C, the fifth of the scale, and then back down the scale to F, the tonic note. In the second phrase, starting in measure five, a variant of the same little tune leaps up a fourth to the upper octave before working its way back down to C. The harmony, all in black chords, is also quite simple. The first phrase ends on the tonic and the second on the dominant although Beethoven does use a chromatic chord to tonicize the dominant chord and give it greater emphasis. Things get a bit more interesting in the next eight bars, with the introduction of the violin. It starts off in perfect coordination with the piano, but by the second measure seems already to be lagging behind a beat. It recovers in time to begin the second phrase together with the piano, but then, just as before, immediately falls behind. But the quirkiness does not end here. The second repeated section begins with a new idea, although one employing the same rhythmic figure we heard in the first bar of the first section. But we are, apparently, no longer in F major, because Beethoven repeats a thickly scored A major chord using that initial rhythmic figure. In fact, the A major chord is reiterated several times, nine to be exact, and after a single measure, the violinist joins in to arpeggiate the same A major chord, twice. The appearance of an A major chord would not generally be considered all that extraordinary, since most composers might well employ it at this point as a secondary dominant chord leading to D minor, which, as a key, is of course closely related to F major, and as such would be a common side trip. And the fact that you hear that A major chord ten times in a row suggests that it's probably going to have some structural significance. 
But after four bars of droning that A major chord into our ears, Beethoven does not resolve the chord to D minor, but rather goes back and repeats the opening four bars of the first section in F major, as if the four bars of A major had never existed. I don't want to overplay the novelty of this incident. It all goes by very quickly, of course. But I think it's safe to say that Beethoven's maneuvers here would probably raise a few eyebrows for those members of the audience who were really listening and who had some experience with late 18th century common practice. Here is the second section. How does Beethoven follow this rather eccentric scherzo section? Well, the trio is certainly not eccentric in the same way. The first section of eight bars consists of a constant flow of mostly ascending staccato eighth notes, played in thirds between piano right hand and violin, while the left hand delivers eight measures of pumping octaves starting on C. At first, we probably hear this flow as alternating between dominant seventh chords on C and tonic chords on F major, where the scherzo section had left off. But in the last couple of measures, Beethoven tonicizes C major. Here is the first section of the trio with repeat. The second section of the trio continues the staccato scale lines in the piano, without the pumping octaves in the left hand this time. The violin changes strategy in the first four bars and contributes a slowly descending scale fragment in half notes, which seems to suggest that Beethoven is heading toward B-flat. But he's not, and the last four measures provide a confirming progression which leads us back to F major as the piano right hand presents a slower moving descending line and the violin returns to the ascending staccato eighth notes that began the trio. Here is the second section of the trio repeated and a few measures of the return of the scherzo section. Clearly, the trio section does not have a great deal to do with the scherzo section. Of course, it is, like many scherzos, something of a joke, with a healthy dose of perhaps Haydn-influenced puckish humor. Nevertheless, it certainly provides a dramatic contrast with the elegant lyricism of the first two movements. The fourth movement is, not surprisingly, a rondo. It's in cut time, marked Allegro ma non troppo, and of course in F major. The refrain theme is presented first in the piano, and it's not a complex one, although it is nicely integrated from a motivic perspective. It starts on the fifth scale degree, goes down to a chromatically raised lower neighbor tone, returns to its starting point, moves up a step, and then descends down a fourth by steps. If that pattern sounds familiar, it's probably because you're remembering the interval pattern from the opening of the scherzo. 
The rhythmic context here is quite different, of course, but the similarity in terms of interval patterns is no coincidence. Here is a simplified version of the first four bars. As you could hear, the second two bars are basically a repeat of the first two down a step. The same motive is repeated and expanded upon in measures 5 through 8, coming to a cadence on the dominant. The harmony is quite basic, relying heavily on tonic and dominant chords, but the piano left hand adds a little subtlety into the mix with a frequent use of its own lower neighbor tones, echoing the same sort of lower neighbor tones in the right hand melody. These are embedded into something of a countermelody and do provide a rather distinctive harmonic coloring. Here's a performance of the first eight measures. The violin then takes over the theme, further expanding it and adding on a new cadential tag that returns us to a cadence on F major. The transition to the first episode is an ambitious one, which presents a series of ideas, some of which echo the refrain melody, and some of which are new. Probably the most memorable of these involves a series of ascending trills. Here's the first part of that transition. The transition takes its time in actually bringing about a modulation to the dominant, and when it's done, the first episode actually slips in in C minor. Here it alternates between somber, lyrical stepwise phrases and cheerful little 16th note turns, played by piano and violin, and which snap us back into C major. As the first episode blends into the retransition, which will bring us back to the refrain melody, New ideas are introduced, most notably a descending triplet pattern and a slowly unfolding ascending line in the piano left hand and later picked up by the violin. Here is the first episode in C minor, followed by the retransition, which returns us to F major, although rather at the last minute and with a new version of the refrain theme. After the refrain has come to an end, the next episode starts up immediately. It begins in D minor and features two main ideas, 
repeated eighth note triplets with distinctive articulation markings, which undulate around, often exhibiting repeated patterns. These occur first in the violin, softly, and are often heard simply as an accompanying figuration pattern against a bolder theme played in octaves. This new idea combines ascending leaps with a series of descending chromatic half-steps and a number of across-the-bar suspensions against the left-hand harmony. This is a longish episode, and violin and piano right hand switch parts more than once. Here's a little of it. After a short retransition, we hear something of a false return of the refrain theme. It's in a new key, initially D major, with the violin providing an expansive countermelody against the piano right-hand melody. Nine measures later, we are back in F major, and the piano presents the refrain melody only slightly modified, while the violin presents some new, multiple-stop pizzicato quarter notes against it. The violin then takes up the theme with only slight changes to the piano accompaniment. The first transition then returns with its familiar ascending trill figures alternating between violin and piano. But there are some new elements. This time around, the key veers unexpectedly into the keys of A-flat and then E-flat, so that when the first episode returns, it now comes back in the key of E-flat minor. There are some other changes. The violin breaks off the 16th note turn figures for a new countermelody for a while, and the turn figure itself is subject to some sequential development not heard earlier. Eventually, though, we return to familiar ground, tonally speaking, and a new variant of the original refrain theme is presented in F major, the original tonic key. Here's an excerpt showing part of the transition leading up to the return of the first episode, now in E-flat minor, and part of the developmental section that follows. The refrain theme never actually returns in its original form, but there are plenty of references to it, including one dotted rhythm version that sounds almost comical, whether purposeful or not. There is a surprising new chorale-like melody introduced in the coda. Watson refers to this as the first and shortest of Beethoven's many hymns of thanksgiving, 
which would later include, among other things, the Thankful Feelings hymn in the Pastoral Symphony. This theme does have a noble air about it, but its relationship to the refrain theme, or earlier episodes, is not particularly clear. On the whole, this is a clever enough rondo, but I'm not sure that, as a movement, it quite matches the stature of the first two, or, in terms of entertainment value, the surprising scherzo. That's all for this episode. In the next, we'll look at the two famous piano sonatas from Opus 27.